I'm going to pick up uh, in Psalm 28. Uh, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at kind of a series within the series, series because we've been looking at uh, lessons from the Psalms. We've been looking at the idea of drawing near to God. We started out in Psalm 25, we're going through Psalm 29 and beyond that, obviously. But for this uh, purpose of this little series of drawing near to God, we're going to keep it within 25 through 29. And tonight we're in Psalm 28, and this one I have titled, In Time of Silence. If you think about, when I think about prayer, and people start, think, start talking about God answering prayer, and they feel like maybe sometimes, like this is, I'm going to discuss a little bit tonight, the silence that we think we hear from God, uh, which I don't think that's the case. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But anytime we... When you communicate with someone, does it sometime, sometimes require patience? I can confess that when my wife communicates with me, she requires patience. Uh, because uh, we want, we're waiting for an answer, right? I'm going to look over there because I know I'm going to get in trouble later. But patience is something that is required in a lot of areas of life, but in communication as well. And with God, it's something different. And we find in Psalm 28, uh, there is a lot of patience that's going to be required of David, as that, that's who this psalm uh, is attributed to. But when we think about in your own life, when you pray to God, do you feel like sometimes you're waiting for the response? And I, I think we can fairly say that when we pray to God, do we always get an answer right away? No. Do we always get the answer that we want? And if we do, do we always get it right away? Because if you think about it, when God responds to prayer, there is a granting of whatever plea or answering your supplication, whatever it may be. There is the possibly the no answer. But what's the third possibility? Not right now, right? Not yet. Wait. When I, was, when I was a kid, my parents say, maybe in the future, but not right now. To me, that was worse than no, because I wanted to do it. I would just say no, just forget about it. But we had to wait for whatever it was. Growing up, we didn't drive until we got to 17 years of age. And the way I drove probably could have been a little bit later. But we didn't get a car and drive when we turned 16. We got a clunker age 17, and we had to wait while everyone else was starting to drive. And so patience is, as I said, I say, patience is a part of, of everyone's life. But for the Christian, it's not any different. When we're praying to God, it's going to require patience. And as you look at Psalm 28, again, I had this title, uh, In Time of Silence. And again, it's not the silence in that God is not going to answer our prayer, but it's the silence of waiting for that answer. I think Psalm 28, that's really what it's about. It's the waiting for that prayer, for that for that reply. And so let's go and begin by looking at Psalm 28, uh, verses 1 and 2. And I've given this section uh, titled David's Plea. Again, this is just verses 1 and 2. There's only nine verses in this uh, text, uh, but I've broken it up in several different areas here. First being David's plea in verses 1 and 2, uh, supplication. In verses 3 and 5, uh, rejoicing in verses 6 and 7, and then finally intercession in verses 8 and 9. 
So verses one and two here, and we're going to look at this a little bit more deeply than just two verses at a time. He says, to you, I will cry, O Lord, my rock. Do not be silent to me, lest if you are silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Now, when you read that verse, what does it sound like David is asking for? He says he's going to cry out to God. He says, I will cry out, O Lord, my rock. Do not be silent to me, lest if you are silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Do non-Christians... Were you going to say something? He wants a response. He wants a response, yeah. He wants a response. Now, David is a faithful follower of God, right? Now, the reference to the latter part there says, I become like those... Is he talking about followers of God or we're not talking about Christians, so it must be either talking about faithful servants of God or people who aren't servants of God, right? Now those is a reference to those who are not following God. And so he's making a comparison, a contrast there between himself and other individuals. And when he says there, to you I will cry, O Lord, my rock. Now let's think about this first phrase for a second. To you I will cry, O Lord, my rock. So God is the source of his what? Fill in the blank. God is his source of, oh, what else? Strength. Strength. Comfort. All those answers. What? Stability. Stability. He's his source of everything. Hope, stability, strength. Love, mercy, comfort, blessing. And the list just goes on and on. Which is why he, I think he uses that word, O oh Lord, my rock. It's everything his life is built upon is built upon him who is that rock. So God is his source of, I put for this instance, of hope. It is to him that he cries out to, to whom he directs his prayers. It's directed towards God. And so not only is it important to see who David is, cries out to, crying in reference to praying, right? Does cry, what does that mean? We understand, yes, it means prayer, but what type? Is it done in earnest? Yeah, is it done in desperation, perhaps? This is not just an everyday prayer. Crying out shows there is an earnest, fervent desire to speak with God. And so it's important to notice who he is crying out to, but also who he's not crying out to. David, I'm sure, had all the confidants and a lot of acquaintances, as we talked about a little bit on Sunday morning, we talked about a little bit with Jonathan, right? Well, he was known to be a friend of David, a very close one, right? And I think he describes one like he was knit to his own soul or something like that, sort of that idea, showing that closeness. But yeah, he doesn't cry out to him. He goes to God. Now, I say to say, it's not wrong to ask friends or family for help, but his very first source of direction is to God. So to you, to you I will cry, O Lord, my rock. And he says, do not be silent to me. 
you think about some of the things we go through in life, and there's a lot of things that are terrifying, probably. We think of all kinds of things, storms and loss of life, uh, loss of health, failing health, whatever it may be. But here, talking about in a spiritual sense, to David, what is terrifying to him? Silence from God is terrifying to him, isn't it? Because if there's silence, it means that God hasn't yet replied. doesn't mean that he's not going to reply, but he has yet to do so. And so silence, I think here in verse 1, from God, it would seem to David to be a very terrifying idea. He's praying to God, he's crying out to God, but yet so far, and that's the key idea, so far, he has not yet responded. This shows how much he relied on God and how much he waited on him. Who was it? There may have been others. I think others have said something similar. But who was it said, I will wait upon the Lord? Wasn't, didn't David say that at least once? You will wait on the Lord. I think we've already seen that in one of the Psalms we looked at already. But here he is still crying out to God. And what scares him is his silence while he is waiting. The last thing he wanted from God was silence. I look at the latter part of verse 1. Lest if you are silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. So if you are silent to me, again, in this context, because we know if we're going to continue that God does reply. But so far, silence means God hasn't yet spoken. God hasn't yet replied. And so if he is silent, that means so far that prayer has not been answered. So help for that prayer, that supplication, that crying has not yet been made. And so because of that, until God replies and answers his prayer, it would seem that there was no help from God. And so, again, seeming, not saying that's the case, See, it would seem there's no help from God. And so he says, lest if you are silent to me, which means there's no help, no reply from you, he says, then, if this was the case, he says, I'll become like those who go down to the pit. Now, some commentators say the pit here, and of course commentators are what they are, they're commentators. Say the pit is a reference to Sheol, the, the, the final dwelling place, the ultimate, the true hell, where, you know, after the judgment, heaven, hell, this is what they're talking about. They apply that to, to, to this pit here. But I think in, in a very simple view here that David felt he would not endure without God's help. And that's a very simple idea. If he's going to go down the pit, it means he's not going to last if God doesn't reply. I think sometimes people read a little too much into things. And simply the idea that if God is silent... There's no help from God. He's not like everyone else who just kind of goes down the valley. Well, if God is silent, right? If. Now looking at verse 2, he says here, Hear the voice of my supplications. When I cry to you, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. So again, first, verse 1, it was a cry. Verse 2 is a supplication. David continues his plea to God. For God to listen to to him and to listen to his prayer. He says, when I lift up my hands. Now, if someone was to lift up their hands during a prayer, that's actually not unbiblical. 
but some of our denominational friends and some of the things they have done have really kind of made it seem like that's outrageous to do. But someone having their hands up when they pray to God is a biblical, we find biblical examples of that. This is one of them. That could be figurative. It could be literal because we know many times people did, in fact, lift up their hands. People did many times fall on their face when they spoke to God. And so whether it be literal or figurative, it wouldn't necessarily be wrong. It wouldn't be wrong to do that, to, for someone to raise their hands up when they prayed to God. A lot of times today when someone, if someone were to do that, again, I think a lot of it is because of the insincerity of other individuals and because of the emotionalism that's applied, attached to that now for a lot of people. They look at that person who did that and say, what are they doing? It would seem odd. It would seem perhaps insincere. How would you react if during a prayer, someone here raised up their hand to God? Now, I'm not saying you have to do that. I'm not saying you should do that. But we find little examples of these individuals who were doing that. And they were doing it in sincerity. Sometimes you find it being shown as someone said when a person raises up their hands to God, it shows they had pure hands before God. They had no, they had already repented of their sins and, and some of them are praying to God. They're trying to raise up holy hands before God. We find it also referenced in uh, the New Testament. But it is a common uh, position many times for those who are praying to God. And it's pictured sometimes, again, I think it's sometimes, I think it's figurative. Sometimes it could be literal. But we find here in verse 2, he says, I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. And so David describes himself praying to God with his hands raised while facing the temple, a common thing done in Old Testament times. David's action shows he continues to seek God in times of trouble and no one else. Again, he hasn't addressed a single other person. He doesn't mention a prophet. He doesn't mention a king. He doesn't mention a governor. It's only God he mentions. And now, were there other kings alive during the time period of David? Yeah. Were there other men of God who were alive and around during the time period of David? Yeah. But he doesn't mention them. Because his source of comfort was God. And so, verses 1 and 2, David's plea. He's praying to God. Now, this next section, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to jump in here. But in this next section, in verses uh, three through five, we have what I've titled here the supplication. And he again, like we've mentioned already, I think in the previous psalm, where he doesn't want to be lumped in with wicked individuals. He doesn't want to be swept up with them. He doesn't want to face any wrath they're going to face. He makes a distinction between himself, he's following God, and the wicked who are not. Now looking at verse three, he says, Do not take me, do not take me away with the wicked, and the, with the workers of iniquity, who speak peace to their neighbors, but evil is in their hearts. And so again, David did not want to be swept up and punished with those who are practicing wickedness. He wants to be separated from the wicked. The wicked are further described in the next phrase when he says here, who speak peace to their neighbors, but evil is in their hearts. Which is me, which when you read that, is that person a genuine or sincere person? If they're speaking things to their neighbors, but saying things 
to themselves or maybe even to others that are not true. They're kind of, we say sometimes people are just going around the neighborhood, just kind of stirring stuff up. Now people don't have to do that anymore. They can get on their little Facebook group and say things in the neighborhood that stirs things up. Happens all the time. Well, here he says, these individuals were doing that type of thing. Who speak peace to their neighbors, but evil is in their hearts. Which means they don't, they're, they're really not thinking anything well about anybody. These actions show those uh, that those here who, who were uh, who were fraud were frauds. They pretended to be peaceable, and but actually evil was in their hearts. They didn't actually uh, hope for peace or want peace with their neighbors, and actually not say have any real concern for others. Evil was in their hearts. And look at verse four here. Give them give them according to their deeds. And according to the wickedness of their endeavors, give them according to the work of their hands, render to them what they deserve. Now that's a pretty powerful statement because it implies that he wants God to carry out his judgment. But you notice he doesn't say anything about because they have done something against me, because they have spoken against me. Now, we know at other times that David had enemies who come against him, and he, God, he prayed for God to protect him from them, and that his will, his judgment be carried out upon them, and his wrath be poured out upon all those individuals because of their wickedness. But here, he doesn't mention anything about them attacking him. And what he's calling for is a general repayment of these individuals who are doing evil. You'll find here in verse 4, you find the phrase, at least in the New King James, three times, according to... According to, which means every time he mentions God punching them, he gives a reason. Give them according to their deeds, according to the things they have done, and according to the wickedness of their endeavors. Give them according to the work of their hands. Render to them what they deserve. And so David asks that God will punish these workers of wickedness based upon their actions and their evil heart. Uh, they are judged and punished based upon the, the actions, thus a righteous judgment and punishment. There is no indication of personal vengeance here, only that God's righteous judgment is carried out against them according to their works. Old Testament and New Testament, when we talk about, especially the final judgment, any judgment, but the final judgment the Bible tells us that we will be judged based up each one we based on the things we have done, whether good or evil, right? Ecclesiastes 12, 13 to 14 bears out that same idea. We go into the New Testament, bears out the same things over and over again. Judgment day is just that, the day where judgment takes place. And here this judgment is calling for yet again is based upon what? According to their deeds. According to the wickedness of their endeavors, give them according to the work of their hands. And then he says, render to them what they deserve. It doesn't say give them, you know, make it even worse for them. We you know it doesn't say just pour out your wrath and kill everyone. He says, give them what they, or render to them what they deserve. Now it could be death. It could be all types of different judgments because we've seen God's wrath revealed numerous times in numerous ways. But he simply says, render to them what they deserve based upon their deeds, their endeavors, and the work of their hands. 
Uh, verse 5 says here, because they do not regard, and again, this verse 4 sets up their deeds. And then verse 5, he elaborates a little bit more when he says here, because they do not regard the works of the, of the Lord, nor the operation of his hands, he shall destroy them and not build them up. Now, think about this first phrase here, because they do not regard the works of the Lord, nor the operation of his hands. So these individuals give no thought to God. They don't think about, this would include no doubt his, his commands, but also everything he has done. They give no thought to the blessings he has provided for the righteous or the punishment he brought about to the wicked. Now these demands or these denials could also be applied to the atheists who deny the power and works of God. They, these individuals do not regard the works of the Lord. We have those today who do not regard the works of the Lord. We talk about things like the creation, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. They do not regard the laws of science we find in the Bible that true science is actually based upon. We look at that there. I uh, look at it, for instance, there in the Old Testament there with uh, Leviticus in particular. There's a lot of things are, are, are discussed that actually are backed by true science. Well, they don't give regard to those things. And that's the same type of people he's dealing with here. They do not regard the works of the Lord, nor the operation of his hands. They don't give God any credit. You ever hear the phrase, give credit where credit is due? These individuals were not doing that. The credit went to God, but they did not regard the works of the Lord, nor the operation of his hands. And as a result, what he found there in the verse 5, he shall destroy them, and not build them up. Now that would seem that if they had regarded the works of the Lord, if they had uh, regarded the, the operation of his hands, they had been faithful to him, then, they, then he would actually build them up. But because they have not, he says he shall destroy them and not build them up. Now when we say build up, we could mean literally the idea that he's going to bless them in a physical way, he's going to give them lands and all kinds of things. Or it could be just spiritual blessings, which you know is always included with faithfulness to God. But in the Old Testament, especially when we find people who are in nations who are faithful to God, they are blessed, right? Job was regarded as the richest, the most wealthy man, believe there in Job 1 and 2, the wealthiest man in, in all, of all the land or, or in all the East. I forget what it says there, but he was very extremely wealthy. And so much so that even... Satan pointed out how God had blessed the works of his hands. And we know it's because he was loyal to God. Well, here we, we find the same idea. He would, he would have built them up, it, would, it seems, had they actually been faithful to God. But instead of being built up, they're going to be destroyed. They're going to be punished by God. We think about that today. How do we apply that today? The building up or the tearing down, I'll say. Does God reward obedience today? Yes, thank you. How does God reward obedience today? Does he reward it by salvation? Is he rewarded by forgiveness of sins? Is he rewarded by fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ? Is he rewarded by being a part of his body, the church? 
as we reward continual faithfulness to the end with heaven. Yes. Revelation 2, verse 10, right? All those things, right? So God still rewards obedience. Now, the flip side is God still punish disobedience. Yes. And where people sometimes don't really understand is when we think about how does God punish disobedience today? I think one of the greatest ways he punishes it is by the absence of blessings. The absence of forgiveness of sins. He punishes wickedness by the absence of forgiveness of sins, by the absence of salvation, by the absence of the hope of heaven, by the absence of fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. And on the judgment day, he gives the final blow to the disobedient. We know we look at Ephesians chapter 1, the Bible tells us that, that uh, all spiritual blessings are in Christ. Therefore, if we're not in Christ, there are no spiritual blessings. Old Testament, if they're not following God, there are no spiritual blessings. And so just as we are rewarded for being faithful to God, being obedient to Him, the disobedient also are, are going to be punished by, I think we can say at least, by the absence of blessings from God. You think about how many people in the world today, and sometimes we're not careful, Christians can get swept up in this as well, how many people who today who are non-Christians, their pursuit of genuine, lasting happiness and fulfillment never seems to end. They're always pursuing something that might bring them some type of fulfillment. We can give all kinds of examples, but the pursuit is always ongoing. It may be materialistic, it may be pleasure of the flesh, and maybe all kinds of different things, but the search seems like it's always ongoing. And one of the greatest examples of that, like I've mentioned so many times before, and we look at those, because I've mentioned this because so many people look to them as the example of this is what you do, and this is how you obtain happiness, because where I am, that's where happiness is. People will look to places like Hollywood, they'll look to uh, the music industry, they'll look to uh, all these business people who are extremely successful, who have sacrificed so much to do so. And they say, well, you see everything they're, they're, they have now, and so that must be happiness. Sometimes we forget what was given up all along the way. All right. Verses 6 and 7. Rejoicing. So verses 1 through 5 really builds up to verse 6 through in the song. He's praying to God, crying out to him, wanting God to answer. He's wanting God to, to give the wicked individuals what they deserve. And then in verse 6 and 7, he says here, Blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my supplications. The very first thing he does is he acknowledges that God has heard him. Now we go back to the very first verse of Psalm 28. Remember he said he prayed that the Lord not be silent. Six verses later, I don't know the exact time frame, but six verses later he's talking about how the Lord has heard him. It would seem that's not very long. 
usually we have that sort of a span and I'm not, I don't know what the span is by time, but it would seem to be very, very short. Now that doesn't mean that God cannot take all the time he wants to answer a prayer because sometimes the answer is wait, right? But we find here in verse six, blessed be the Lord. And so he's giving blessings to God. And then you see why? Because he has heard the voice of my supplications. Now you take verse six alone. Does he even mention that God gave him what he, what he asked for? No. He's rejoicing because God heard him. He's rejoicing because God heard his supplications. Now you think about that for us today. And because we are Christians, when we pray to God, we know God hears our prayer. And I think sometimes if we would be better off if we start being grateful that God hears our prayer. I don't mean he hears the sound of our voice. I mean, he hears our, our prayer in the sense that he is aware of what we are saying. Because we've all been in the store and hear all kinds of noise. You don't know what really is being said. But God hears not the idea of him hearing the noise of our voice. He hears and understands what we are saying. And so when he says here in verse 6, Blessed be the Lord because he has heard the voice of my supplication. So David is found here to be rejoicing because God has heard his prayer. Our response to God hearing our prayer should be the same. No one provides answers or no one, not everyone always listens to our concerns in difficult times. You ever bring, you ever been talking to someone and you have a lot of things going on in your life and trying to talk to them about something and it just seems like they're not really listening? Now, that's probably one of the more disturbing and discouraging things to have happen. And hopefully we're not guilty of that. And if we are, hopefully we'll do better in the future. But to have someone actually hear and pay attention is not as common as we would like. But God, in verse 6, he has heard what David has said. And for that reason alone, in verse 6, he's already rejoicing. He starts off by saying, blessed be the Lord. Why? Because he simply has heard me. Because non-Christians, and for Old Testament's sake, those who are not followers of God, they didn't have the ability to have God hear and to pay attention to their prayers. Looking at verse 7. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices, and with song I will praise him. Now, there's no real clear clarity about what his cry was, or what his supplication was, right? He doesn't say exactly, God, I want you to do this for me and lay it all out there. He just says he has, he has cried out to God, he has brought a supplication to God. Now, verses 6 and 7, he has heard him. And he says, the Lord is my strength and my shield. When I think of shield, I think of a defensive weapon. I mean, you could use it for offensive reasons, but most of the time it's a defensive weapon. Strength would seem to be no, very much so an offensive weapon. Well, offense and defense, that's what you want on any team. 
Well, God is supplying him all that he needs, his strength and his shield, his, his offensive weapon and his defensive weapon. My heart trusted in him, and I am helped. He doesn't say what God has done, but he just simply says, I am helped. You ever try to help your child and you say, you know what, I'm going to help you do this part of it, but I'm not going to do all of it for you because you have to figure it out. I don't know if that's what he's talking about. The Lord helped him to a certain level and David needed to pick it up and do it himself. No, because God wasn't capable because we need to learn some things ourselves sometimes. Well, in whatever way, because he, David doesn't say, he says, my heart trusted in him and I am helped. However the Lord helped him in whatever manner, it definitely had seemed here to be more than enough to satisfy David because he goes on to say there in verse 7, my heart greatly rejoices and with song I will praise him. And so was David satisfied with what God did to help him? You don't rejoice and start singing if you're upset. Well, unless you're, you know, in the prison like those we read about <laughs> Paul and others who were there, right? But generally speaking, you don't do that. But here, his, his reply from God, his help that he has gained from him, moves him, motivates him to be great, to rejoice and to sing praises to him, as we see there in verse 7. And so in whatever way God answered his prayer, whatever his, his desire was, David was completely satisfied. That rejoicing and singing, he's happy. The Lord has helped him. Now, the final two verses here. We have this uh, intercession in verses 8 and 9. He says, The Lord is their strength, and he is the saving refuge of his anointed. It's interesting, if you think about this for a second, let's back up for a second here. Verse 7, he says, The Lord is my strength. He's talking about himself, right? My strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, I am helped. My heart rejoices, and with my song, I will praise him. He's talking about him personally. Who's he talking about in verses 8 and 9? Israel. Who is spiritual Israel today? The church. You and I. And so he's telling others... To basically do what he did. Trust in the Lord. The Lord is their strength. No longer my. So he's not talking about himself. He's talking about others. The Lord is their strength. And he is the saving refuge of his anointed. His anointed. A reference to those who are followers of him. So David acknowledges that God is not only his saving refuge. But the saving refuge for all of God's anointed. That is the faithful. And then he says here in verse 9, Save your people and bless your inheritance. Shepherd them also and bear them up forever. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Who is his people? There in verse 9. Save your people. Was everyone God's people? No. So who is your people? Those who are faithful to him. So save your people. Save the faithful. 
and bless your inheritance. That is those who are faithful to him and those who would come afterwards and be faithful to him, right? Shepherd them also and bear them up forever. A shepherd is to guide and protect. They guide and they protect and they, no doubt, they, they watch out over them. That's a, a way of protecting. But the shepherd is to guide them and protect them. And he says, shepherd them also. So he wants God to be their guide and their protection. You think David knew that God could be more than sufficient to be their protection and their guide? Absolutely. He was David's. I mean, this is the same person who said a few, few verses back here that he is his strength, he is his shield, his heart trusts in him. Over and over again, he says similar phrases like that. And so when he says here in verse 9, shepherd them also and bear them up. Israel, he needed them, God, to encourage and remain, encourage them and to remain with them forever. Bear them up. I think also you can apply that to the idea of him carrying them through difficulties. And during Israel's time from leaving Egypt, going to the promised land, to say they faced struggles is a small way of putting it, right? Now, if we're honest, when we look at Israel, we know that 99% of their struggles came upon them because of themselves, 1% because of other things, other groups, perhaps. But the majority of their problems came upon them because of themselves. You think about it that way, Israel is really, we say sometimes someone you take three steps forward and two steps back. That's kind of what Israel was doing repeatedly. It took them a long time to promise them because they keep going forward and back, forward and back. Going to captivity and all these other things and, and, and all, all the things that happened before they got to the promised land. You know, you think about the time they got from Egypt to, to the promised land. It was, for the most part, it was a whole different group of people, wasn't it? Most of them were dead along the way. Had died along the way. Either because of their unfaithfulness, because of, uh, you know, the wanderings, all those types of things. And so when the time they got to the promised land, most of them who started out weren't even there. But he asked God to bear with Israel, to bear them up, he says there, forever. That implies not just to, you know, to the promised land, but for all time. Now, if we are spiritual Israel today, the church, do we want God also to be our shepherd? You know, Christ, we know, is referenced as the true shepherd, Right? We are of his foal, we are one of his flock, we are to go into his pasture, and he's going to uh, guide, guard, and protect us, right? So long as we are loyal to him. And so we find that same idea here in Psalm 25, especially here in verses 8 and 9. And so, when you think about, again, our series title is Drawing Near to God. And yet, you know, we start out in chapter in Psalm 25 dealing a lot with trust and some other things as well. But there's no doubt that Psalm 28 has a lot to do with trust and prayer, doesn't it? Trust and prayer. Those two go hand in hand, don't they? 
you think about something that in your life, you say, well, you know, when you have one, you have the other, they, they go right together all the time. It's a perfect fit. Prayer and trust is a perfect fit. You pray to God and you trust in him. That's what David was doing, wasn't it? He mentioned several times crying out to God, making supplications to God, and then he trusted that God would answer him. And so we think about what that means for us today and drawing near to God. We don't just need to trust in God. We need to pray to God and trust him and continue to do those things really repeatedly throughout our life. You think about how many times you read in the Psalms and it's David who's crying out to God. I don't know how many times it is exactly. I haven't looked it up, but there's a lot of it where it's David who's crying out to God for a host of various reasons, but he's crying out to God because that's where his trust was. And we find that yet again here in Psalm 28. Prayer and trust, and like we start off with talking about as well, patience. If we have trust, we have to be patient. Which, again, something that I know I have to work on all the time, being patient on a lot of different areas, a lot of different reasons. And David was not any different. When the Lord seemed to be silent, what is he doing? He's waiting, trying to be patient, trusting in God. All right, any closing comments, questions this evening? I feel like verse 4 there was talking about giving to them for their needs, for their nations, for their work. The kings were to read the law. That was a command for them to read the law. Mm -hmm. And he understands Genesis Deuteronomy 32 to 35. says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He's not asking to do it. I think something we yeah. can learn from that. that yeah. you know, people are going to get what they deserve and what the court said wickedness. So I think sometimes we as people, we want to see it. Yeah, we want to see it. But he was saying, just take care of it. He yeah. understood that. Yeah, that's a good point. Allowing God to be the one who handles it. And, and, and to that point, we look at it throughout the Bible. Does God know how to punish and, just, and justly the wicked? Absolutely. And he handles it better than anyone else. He's merciful where he needs to be merciful. And he is pouring out wrath where the rebellion, where the rebellious are found. All right, we're going to stop there this evening.